On this, the fifth Sunday of Eastertide, we continue our series on stewarding our resources and exploring our own money stories by turning to the book of Deuteronomy in the Torah, or law, the first five books of the Bible. And we hear about how we are to have financial relationships with one another. Let us join the ancient Israelites and listen across time and space to hear the word of God we need for today. Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. This is how the cancellation is to be handled. Creditors will forgive the loans of their fellow Israelites. They won't demand repayment from their neighbors or their relatives because the Lord's year of debt cancellation has been announced. You are allowed to demand payment from foreigners, but whatever is owed to you from your fellow Israelites, you must forgive. Of course, there won't be any poor persons among you because the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, you to possess as an inheritance, but only if you carefully obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing every bit of this commandment that I'm giving you right now. Once the Lord your God has blessed you exactly as God said they would, you will end up lending to many different peoples but won't need to borrow a thing. You will dominate many different peoples, but they won't dominate you. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, say, one of your fellow Israelites in one of your cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor fellow Israelites. To the contrary, open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend them whatever they need, but watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as, the seventh year is coming, the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent your poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. No, give generously to needy persons. Don't resent giving to them, because it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord your God's blessing you in all that you do and work at. Poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, to the poor who live with you in your land. The word of God for the people of God. continue with the passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you who were in worship two weeks ago heard this same story from the Gospel of Mark. A man approached Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And the man said, Which ones? 
And Jesus said, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man replied, I've kept all these. What am I still missing? And Jesus said, if you want to be complete, go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away saddened because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. And when his disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them carefully and he said, it's impossible for human beings but all things are possible for God. The good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? God of abundance, of forgiveness, of economies that sound strange to us. We come with all that we are, with all that we hope to be, and more importantly, with all that you may hope for us to be. <clears throat> may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say. Amen. If you've ever wondered what the Bible says about managing finances, well, you've had a good taste just now. And if you're not provoked, then you probably dozed off during the readings. That's okay, I'm gonna to try to pick up the pieces here. I happen to be inspired by these passages and I'm provoked. Because when God starts talking through emissaries like Moses and Jesus about resources and who gets what and who deserves what, it's downright radical. And it undercuts all of our well-ingrained ideas about fairness and productivity. Now, if you feel awkward talking about money and finances in church, I get it. It's probably because many of us grew up in households where money was always a hot topic in one way or another. It was considered private and loaded. However, it is true, I believe, that in healthy families, in healthy systems, we commit ourselves to talking openly, honestly, and straightforwardly about money. And trust me, I know personally how hard that can be to do. It can also feel awkward because churches have a reputation for being only interested in your money. Or at least that's the perception when we start talking about it or asking for it. Certainly corrupt churches and corrupt evangelists have shown that for us. And there's an underlying assumption that religious institutions should be able to run on good intentions, spiritual nourishment, and warm feelings alone. Don't bring any of that hard reality stuff into the sanctuary. That's what I used to think but then I became a pastor. For the uninitiated about how a church budget works, we would be happy to go over the realities of revenue and expenses on our spreadsheet. The conversation we're actually trying to have over these four weeks, starting, well, actually over five weeks, starting two weeks ago with Amy, last week with Juliana, and today, and concluding on May 21st with our Consecration Sunday, when we'll bring forth our pledges, 
It's a conversation not about money per se, but about our attitudes and our relationship with money. And we're inviting all of us to take some time on a personal exploration of those attitudes as we prepare once again as a community to make our pledges for the program and fiscal year ahead. Now, just a little clarity about our stewardship practice. For some of you, this will be review. For some who may be newer among us, this might be interesting. Roughly about 50% of our revenue comes from all of us. That is the pledges that each household makes to sustaining the life of this congregation on a yearly basis. It's just like public radio with their drives every year. The other 50% comes from the yield on our endowments, treasure that people set aside for us in years past, from our past our three original congregations, and usage of our building by many outside groups. Anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people come through our building on a weekly basis. A small portion comes from passing the plate and collecting the offering in worship. It's still important, I believe, to do that, only to if only to recognize how our finances are used in holy ways and to do this on a regular basis. Now, I learned this week that with inflation, it looks like this year our annual budget will surpass $1 million. That's not anything to brag about. It's just the reality, which means it costs just over $2,700 a day to run this place, over $19,000 a week. Surprising? Surprising when I did those numbers. It's another one of the things they don't teach you at Divinity School. And although we are part of three different denominations, we don't receive any money from them. In fact, it flows the other way. They assign us dues, and we call upon their services and resources from time to time. And unlike our denominations, or our neighboring Jewish temples, or your health club, or your Netflix subscription, we do not charge dues. We support that 50% of our collective budget through our individual pledges, which is a promise that each of us makes and it's a promise that may change over time depending on how our personal finances and our priorities change over time. So back to examining our attitudes and feelings and thoughts about money and our relationship to it. Money by itself is a tool and it represents our resources, the hours we work, our savings and accumulation, the interest and investment and the psychological fluctuations of the market and how they affect all that. In another time, in another place, you and I would have measured our wealth by the amount of land, crops, livestock, family members, or the livelihood of our trade, that, and or perhaps the servants that we had. And I'm noticing that as our culture gets more and more digitized, our wealth is measured simply by a bunch of numbers, and you wonder where the real resources are. Out in the cloud somewhere? Our financial relationships only exist to the extent that we agree that the numbers are real. In a consumer capitalist culture like our own, we get seduced, or rather I think we get indoctrinated to believe that our self-worth is tied to our net worth. And as a culture, we have a problem of looking down on people who don't have much money and implicitly asking what's wrong and admiring and envying people who have more money than we do. If you have any questions about that, just check out how politics runs in this country. But I'm here to tell you and to remind you that those are not God's values. They're not Jesus' values, and they're not the values of the early church. 
Money, resources, finances are always a reality. For some of us, they come easily. For some of us, they feel like a constant struggle. Some of us are very diligent about how to make it, to save it, invest, and grow it. And other of us don't want to in get involved with that tedium at all. Don't show me another spreadsheet. It's why I've been grateful in this congregation to have people who are willing to look at our money issues honestly, straightforwardly, faithfully, and creatively, and with a sense of abundance thinking. On our stewardship team, we've been looking at a curriculum and a worship planning guide called Our Money Story, which we've incorporated pieces of here today. And it has four parts of it. To remember our money story, to release whatever binds us in it, to reimagine how it could be different, and to restore ourselves in right relationships, both with our resources and one another. So today we're focusing on release. And these scripture passages invite us to think about release of our money story in both personal ways and in macro ways. Let's start with the macro way that we heard in the passage from Deuteronomy that Madeline read for us. The Israelites are setting up new systems for their society, new ways of being. They've been enslaved in Egypt and now they're free. You can think of a recent fairly recent historical example of South Africa after the end of apartheid and how they tried to create a new way of being, starting with their truth and reconciliation tribunals. As part of their economic policy, the Israelites instituted that every seven years, creditors must forgive debts that are owed to them. It was designed as a way to keep their society whole, to keep it together, reminding them that they were all in this together. It also reminded them that they had been slaves in Egypt, captives in a system of endless debt to their masters, and God broke them out of there. So they are to remember with compassion those who have less, the poor among them, because they were once those people. So I want you to imagine how this would work. Say you loan a friend or a relative who's going through a hard time an amount that would be significant to you. Might be for some of us $50 or $500 or $5,000 or more. But you decided out of the generosity of your accounts and your spirit to give it to them as a loan. And you know they want to pay it back. But then they have a health emergency and they're without insurance. Or they lost their job and had trouble getting another one. Or perhaps they just spent it on things that were fleeting. And the fair and square parts of you thinks, you know, I did a really good thing there, and I should expect to be paid back. I didn't even ask for interest on it. And being steeped in capitalism, we think, you know, they're really not managing this well. What's wrong with them? But then seven years comes around, and you are ordered, like everyone else, to forgive them that debt. Imagine how you feel. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the sense of betrayal. Or you might have thought, I'm never going to get it back anyway. I wonder what it would be like if our American economy worked this way. Imagine if every seven years, student loans, unpaid rent, mortgages that hadn't been fulfilled were just forgiven, clean slate, and we started over. What would that do to us as a culture? It would, it would be like a card game that we played out for seven years. Some of us won, some of us lost, and now we're going to start over.
But what might it do to the way we see one another on a regular, daily, weekly, monthly basis? The way we would relate to each other. We might see that actually making money and managing money well is a gift that comes naturally for some of us and less so for others. That holding on to and investing resources is something that some of us inherit both materially and a way of doing it genetically. We might value other gifts a bit more of give and take, of reciprocity, like the value of encouragement, or the value of a well-cooked meal, or the value of an enduring friendship, or the value of creating beauty in the world through art and music, or the value of caring for children, the value of cleaning up. And we would realize that some of us are good at it and some of us aren't. And it requires all of us to make this thing called human society work. It might level the playing fields among us in ways that are simply in our mind of how we look at one another and give us a greater sense of equality and that we're all in this together. Because in God's economy, abundance and forgiveness are the bottom line. Now, in this money story worship guidance of remembering, releasing, reimagining, and restoring, we're invited to think about it at an individual level. And there are questions at the end of your worship order. There's also a link in your stewardship packet, which is waiting for you, that you can follow along in a journal they've provided for us. We see this at the individual level with the rich young man who's told to sell everything. And as Amy explored with us two weeks ago, it's hard for him because a lot of his identity is knit into his wealth. He's got the nice chariot, the great condo overlooking the gardens, the nice tunics. He can have any meal he wants at any time of day, and people flock to him because of his abundance. And I'm sure his parents taught him a lot about it. To those whom much is given, much is expected. Don't waste it. Remember, you didn't earn all of this. It was given to you. Or you did earn all of this. Be sure you guard it carefully. Amy pointed out that the rich young ruler, as he's known in Mark, is someone who is suddenly and jarringly confronted with the ways that his money story is getting in between him and his relationship with God. And it makes it hard for him to write a new story grounded in that godly relationship. And we're called to ground our relationship with our resources in our relationship with God, to reweave the stories we've received so that they're not based on God's, that, so that they're based on God's story, not the other way around. So I invite you, as we go through these weeks, to think about your own money story, what shaped you, what influenced you. I've shared with some of you before, individually, and I believe in worship many years ago, I'm aware that my money story, my parents argued like strange cats and dogs sometimes, they had both been babies of the Depression who had grown up, one in more of a community of a family of scarcity and one in a family of abundance. My father remembers being the fifth of seven children, not asking his dad for a nickel because he didn't know, he knew his dad didn't have a nickel to give him. My mother, on the other hand, grew up with a man who was a farmer. They grew up poor during the Depression, but it was known if you're going to do any business dealings with my grandfather, you better be careful because you might get the short end of the deal. And he managed to create a sense of abundance in that family out of their measures. Now, my parents came from similar environments, but they had two different money stories. And every argument I remember them having started with balancing the checkbook ledger. 
My father thought it should be exact and to the penny, and my mother was a little more casual. And these, these arguments are a central part, I remember, of my growing up and my siblings. And it wasn't until recently I realized they have a hook in me, that they are still there, that I still go back to being that little kid sitting in the kitchen table, very upset by this argument that was going on and not really seeing a way out of it because it got to be where I could write the script for this argument. One of the things I'm dealing with is what it means for me to release that story, for me to live in ways that money is not a scary or fraught or argumentative thing in my own personal life, but ways that we can talk about it human to human and aware that there are numbers on a page that represent hard work, hours, good luck, inheritance, and many other things, and how to move proactively into God's kind of abundance and forgiveness. As we go forward in this series, next week to reimagining, I invite you to check out the journal and the questions, and I'm going to leave you with some questions. To ask yourself, what parts of your money story are begging for release? Do you need to release the need to always be productive or to constantly prove your worth? Do you need to release the shame of having too little or having too much? Do you need to re release painful labels and unmet expectations? And similar to this year of canceled debts that the Israelites practice, what ways could we practice forgiveness and financial release in our relationships, our businesses, our churches, our governments? Because as always, I believe what we learn to practice in here is the world as it should be, so that we can take it in our hearts and minds and attitudes out into the world as it is. And to remember, as Jesus told his disciples, that all things are possible for God. Amen.